You're not an informant. I like that word because you're not informing anybody with anything in particular as an individual common person. No one cared very much in the old world for the information that you had regarding good political policy. But there was wisdom in the old world, or at least that is what this show in part posits. Hello, and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's this podcast. It's aimed at folks who, maybe like you, or Neo, say, in The Matrix, people who are out there who feel a deep sense of dislocation. On this pod, we talk about heavy things, but we do it lightly. Theology, history, philosophy, those are our tools, plus years and years of deeply immersive experiences in foreign cultures. That's what we do at First Things, and that's what we're going to use to figure out, how do we get here? We're going to go beyond rhetorical rabbits, quickly reproduce media memes meant to entertain us and make big money for big media, and we're going to go and instead examine contemporary cultural phenomena. So join me, John Hears, and our team of First Things field workers as we wonder aloud, why are we talking about rabbits? This is What's a Vote? So it's a real interesting thing when you think about it, voting. You're putting your name on something and saying, yeah, I back that person. I am for that person, that person and their policy. And in America just now, actually, we've all really come out and done this voting thing. We put our names on things. I think we participated. So let's do a quick Watar look at what voting is. And let's start with the American Psychological Association because don't you think psychology might be the actual currency of the age? The way we figure stuff out? Let's start with them. I don't know if I want that to be the currency of the age, but it is. Let's listen to Paul Meal. He's a University of Minnesota psychologist. And he's laying out Basic reasons for why human beings, especially in the West, what we call New Worlders, why they vote. Here we go. One, they see it as a form of altruism, doing good voting. Did you did you see it that way? People who vote see uh, voting and believe that they're doing something that is... How should we say, as, as he says, it is a part of peer culture. You are doing it because you have peer pressure. Another thing that he says in an article in the American Psychological Association is that voting is a type of egocentrism. It's a way to display fervor for something and then, this is interesting, get others to display it too. Apparently, in doing so, you get a rush. Hey, look what I did. It's a, he calls it the voter's illusion, which is funny. Another reason for voting is that it's a type of self-expression. It's a painting. It's a way of positing to others the kind of person you are. It's like 
he tells a story about an ex-felon who repeatedly tried to vote, but they wouldn't let him. So he stood in line for an hours and hours. He even went home, took care of his kid, and brought his kid to stand in line. And they stood there and got turned away twice before finally someone verified that he was able and rightfully could vote. He was claiming membership, is what Meal says. He was claiming membership in a larger group. So you're trying to demonstrate that you are somebody and that you matter. And that's where I want to start. Do you really matter? Are you really, like, like impactful? Are you real in the political sense? And do you matter? In most old world societies, the answer to the mattering question was no, no, you don't matter. Not like that, anyway. Not as a political participant, not as a sort of a reliquary, a a repository of key info. There's nothing about you that particularly matters when it comes to issues of political governance but it wasn't in the old world. Now, the old world, again, is this period. It's I'm, I'm obviously romanticizing it in our podcast, Watar, but it's that period before the Enlightenment. It's the period where a lot of countries are still practicing all kinds of old world, what we call ways of being. 1650, throw an update out there for a time when life starts to shift in Europe and then it, you know, it's America. We're New Worlders. But... It wasn't that you didn't matter in the old world. It's that you didn't matter for certain things, right? You did matter in some ways, just not in all ways. It was that you didn't matter as an essential cog in the political machine called government. You didn't play the role of informer. You didn't have information that people wanted You as a person in the old world, a regular person, you didn't have any particular wisdom to add. No one cared that much about your opinion. And they didn't care that you wanted to add some singular and beautiful stitch to some democratic quilt of collective wisdom. Did I say democratic? (laughs) You weren't part of the great quilt of wisdom called democracy. Truth didn't depend on you in the old world. In old world societies lumped together as I'm doing, even to this day, if you go to certain places, Central America, the wisdom necessary to guide leaders is not found in the collective will of the people. This is definitely true for most of Africa. You, as a one of the collected wills, you just don't have much to say. You're not an informant. I like that word because you're not informing anybody with anything in particular as an individual common person. No one cared very much in the old world for the information that you had regarding good political policy. But... There was wisdom in the old world, or at least that is what this show in part posits. 
But where did it come from if it didn't come from you, the people? Me, the people. We, the people. Well, if you've been listening at all and you're aware of how the old world works, you know the answer. The wisdom was found in the revelations produced by divinity, by the gods, be it the big G God or the little G gods. And this can be illustrated in a number of ways. Let me start with a personal story. Then I'll get back to the history. This is where our work comes into play. First things. In the early 1990s, Mali, M-A-L-I, that's a country in West Africa, was undergoing a great democratic revolution. And I was there. It was removing from office a, quote, president who had been in office since 1968. He was, you know, he was elected year after year, but there were scam elections, according to the Western tradition. His name was Musa Traore. Mr. Traore was corrupt by any democratic standard, by our Western, right, standards. He faked elections, he imprisoned students. As an aid worker there at the time, I watched this happen. It was going on all around me. And I saw more than a few marchers. And in fact, if you keep this quiet, keep it quiet. Don't tell my mother. I actually entered and marched in one of these pro-democracy marches. And the reason I don't want you to tell my mother is because I got arrested in that march. Yeah, in so marching with two of my buddies, I got arrested. So did they. We all got arrested. These guys jumped out of a truck in camo, just like you're thinking, like, like in some Jason Bourne movie, pointed guns at us and brought us onto the back of the flatbed and drove us top speeds through the city and took us to a prison. Not joking. Separated us and then accused us of having a gun, which was ridiculous. And then we paid a bribe. And then we went home. Yeah, that's in Bamako, 1991, I think. But I digress. That's not what the story is about, but it's interesting. We can maybe tell that story another day. You go back to Triari, though. Triari was eventually captured during the process of this democratic revolution in 1991. He was captured, captured by one of his own army officers, and then he was sentenced to death, along with his very unsavory wife, Miriam. And basically, Mali became a type of of democracy right there. They got rid of Traore and they became a type of democracy. Basically, voting was extended to common people and, well, I got to see that extension. I didn't get kicked out of the country for getting arrested, thank goodness. I don't know how they didn't find out. Uh, my employer didn't find out. I wasn't supposed to be in that march. But I got to hang around and see the, the extension of this reform. I got to see them extend democracy into the countryside where I happen to work and live. So how did it look, this democracy in this West African country, famous for its kings, going all the way back to Sunjiata in the 1200s? You've heard of him because he's the Lion King guy. It's a very proud country. Well, now they're trying democracy. Well, let's just say it looked like this. In Sindala, in the little village that I lived and worked, no one voted. Well, that's not true. Everyone voted all at once. Yeah, 
aided by the chief, a skinny, wonderful man named Dugutiki Moro. Yeah, he made sure everybody voted, and they all voted for the same candidate. And it was the one he picked, and it was the one his family aligned with ethnically. You see, the village I lived in voted like a late 19th century American family. An American family in the 1800s. They voted as a block, as a unit. In that sense, no one voted, yet everybody voted. When the chief pulled the lever for everybody, he voted on their behalf. And the American father in 1899 pulled the lever for the entire family. That's the way it was understood. You see, they were both chiefs in that sense. Morrow, because of the Democratic Revolution, had become little Musa. Musa Traore was the president. The power had gone from that individual who kind of rigged the elections. Now the chiefs were making the decisions on behalf of everyone in their village. In America, for a long time, it was the father who was the little chief who made the decision on behalf of the family. Well, all that's going to change, just like it's all going to change in Mali, right? But at the time, it was odd for me, a young American, to watch as everyone just literally, in my mind at the time, just gave up their right, hear the word, to vote. Hey, man, that's your right. And I went to my mother at the time, my mother in the village, the one who I took care of me, whatever that was. I I ate with the family. Her name was Umu. And I went to her and I asked her, why don't you vote? And she said, why would I do that? Literally. She said, that's not my business. Well, I asked her what was her business. And she said, "I I make karate oil. Dugutiki's business is to vote. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's, I'm going to have to do something about this. I need to educate her about the democratic process. I actually did say that. You see, it was odd to me then, but it still remains kind of hard to understand how she can just skip out. But it was clear then and clear now even clearer now that the reason Dugutiki Moro voted and Umu didn't is because. He was, for them, the icon of collective wisdom. He was the repository of the ancestors, of the ancient, of all that was known as political in Sandiala, the village, and all that was good and political to the Malinke people in that region and to that family of villages known as Kamara. He was the image of all that. He could do that. He could pull the lever. That was his business. And the wisdom of politics was in him. Karate oil, what they used to cook, that was not for him, the chief. That was for Umu and me to some degree, right? And the men had certain, common men had certain things they did, like go out and till the land. Everybody had a thing they did. Politics wasn't one of Umu's things. So that's one way of trying to bring you up to speed on the old world. But there's another way. If we just look at history, it gets really interesting. So 
I want to share this illustrative example of how democracy, though we tend to think of it in the West as sort of a birthright, how it's just not that. It's a set of philosophical meanderings and reasonings that we've adopted as human beings. So you know about the Greeks, right? The ancient Greeks and Plato and all those cats, right? Well, a very, very short primer on this show will tell us that the Greeks did lots of stuff with philosophy and politics and that our system of government right now is in some ways fashioned after theirs. Now, this last election, you might say, there's nothing fashioned after anything. It's just a big, giant, random newscast. But that's for a different conversation. But we have fashioned much of what we do on the Greeks, and that's true to an extent. We, like the Greeks, value the vote, but be careful. Because that story about democracy in ancient Greece, well, that's just where chapter like 20 ended in your 10th grade textbook. It's just as far as your teacher got in world history. There's a whole bunch after that. And we need to learn a few things about what comes next for the Greek people in order to fully understand what democracy and the vote is in the past to the old world and, right, like in a mirror when we hold it up, and what voting means to us. So first, the great philosophers of Greece, first thing we got to know is without exception, all of them, Plato, Aristotle, all of them, all the ones that you know, they had fear and loathing for democracy. Okay, that's a fact. They did not like that system of governance. Check out the link to a great video uh, I've put. It's by the BBC. It's a nice short video that tries to explain it, but they throw in Trump as a modern example. It's interesting. Second thing we got to know about this period after, right, this Greek history is, is there was a period of time in ancient Greek history when democracy was ascendant. The golden age of Athens, sometimes called the age of Pericles, the height of democratic Greece lasted about 20 years. The entire democratic experiment, right, the entire attempt at running a democracy depending how you measure it, lasted just about 150 years. The real good stuff was only about 20 years worth of, right, of governance. But Greece has it nearly a 3,000-year-old history. And that's a lot of history that we should kind of take a peek at to understand what voting is. And a lot of the history of the, Christian, of the Greek people is as a Christian empire. And what did the Christian Greeks think of democracy? That's a good question to ask, because as a group of Westerners, Europeans, and Americans, we have a Christian, Protestant Christian tradition. Well, the Greeks had that too. How did the Greeks know their democracy, right, when they adopted Christianity? How did Christianity fit with the old heritage of democracy? I mean, surely the Greek Christians were were more open to democracy because they were Christians, right? Weren't they Christians trying to acquire the collective will of the people? And so wouldn't these ancient Greeks, Greeks at the time of Christ, for example, or at the time of Constantine, wouldn't they want to adopt Christi- uh, democracy? I mean, they're Greeks. They invented the vote. Their heritage, their history informs them of, their, of themselves, and they were voters. Did they? 
become Democrats. I'm talking Greeks of, say, 300 AD, Greeks of 400 AD, Greeks of 200 AD, Greek people who acquired Christianity. Did they? Yeah, not at all. They did not try to adopt their Christianity and meld it with democracy. You see, Greeks became Christians starting around the time of Christ. I mean, Paul wrote letters to Corinthians, that's modern-day Corinth in Greece, and to Thessalonians in modern-day Thessaloniki, that's Greece. And you get the picture. Greeks were becoming Christians all over the Greco-Roman world starting around, I don't know, zero, 33, however you want to do it. By 313 AD, like I mentioned, Constantine becomes a Christian king of sorts, and he Oh, he does this thing where he makes Christianity legal, and then it starts a whole new chapter in Greek history, the chapter we've come to know as the Byzantine Empire, the Byzantine chapter. And guess what? Constantine and all those emperors who came after him, all those Greek dudes who knew very well their Greek heritage, which included the golden age of democracy, all of them, without exception, chose not to employ a democratic form of government. We're talking a thousand years the Byzantines rolled on and not one of their leaders chose to have their people vote. All of them chose again and again to employ a type of government where me and you, our collective wisdom, went unheard. They didn't ask for our opinion. They just left us to make karate oil. Yet these were Greeks. These were the democracy people. People of the demos, why wouldn't they let us chime in, us regular people? Why are they leaving me and Umu out? Why wouldn't they let us know that we matter by letting us vote? The key to understanding this is to go back to our modern day psychologists. What is voting again? Well, voting is a type of altruism for the individual. Voting was a way to display your ego. Remember, this is what they said. This is what Paul Meal says earlier. Voting is a way to display you are somebody, you're an individual, and you're able to persuade others. Voting is about self-expression, a way to show what kind of person you are. Voting is a way to claim membership in a larger group. Yeah. You demonstrate that you are somebody and that you've achieved something by acquiring membership. You see, the old cats in the old world, and this kind of really goes, you can do this in India too, you can do it in China, you can do it in Russia. The old cats, they didn't clamor for the vote in the old world. And the leaders of the old world didn't hold it back from them because the leaders were trying to control everything in a tyrannical fashion. The best way to understand the vote in the old world and voting is that self-expression and self-worth weren't found in the machinations of politics. They were found in the machinations of church and the God with whom you shared your life. To be a person was to be in communion with God and the people who shared that faith. That's just how it worked. You didn't need society to validate yourself. You didn't need to inform the body politic of your views 
What you needed was to ask for some sort of forgiveness from whatever God you were worshiping, and you had to demonstrate that you were on his team. Now, that got political too. But the notion was self-validation, self-expression came as per your God, not as per your state. You see, being in communion, it made you a human of noteworthiness. And to be a human of noteworthiness is everyone's hope ever. Old people, new people, young people, tall people, short people, black people, white people, gay people, straight people, Donald Trump people, Joe Biden people. All of us want to be a human of noteworthiness. And so... We vote. Well, we in the new world vote. But wait, there's something else in the story that's really interesting. So who did, in fact, bring democracy back? If democracy dies, do a quick timeline with me. If democracy dies in the Greek heartland in something like 350 BC, 350 years before Christ, after having a nice 150-year run in Greece, The Romans kind of do democracy-ish for a little while, Republican form of government, and then that dies. And then from a, let's just go 300s, really 370 AD, from 370 AD basically until 1776, let's just go with that, 1400 years, who does democracy? No one. Wait, there's not much democracy in the world? No so who does it then? Who like who brings sexy back? Americans. That'd be Americans. We Americans, a very, very mixed, shall we say, de- deistic heritage. We Americans of the Protestant tradition mixed with a whole bunch of deism and a whole bunch of New World philosophies. We bring sexy back. We bring democracy back from the depths of a very secular Greece way back when. Yeah, I think you could argue that only the American mindset of the individual and the individual's relationship with their good, with their God, only the American mindset, only that one could create modern democracy. You see, it took a certain people with a certain understanding of communion, right? A certain culture and a certain people that could even come up with a new way of voting, a new democracy, a new world. It was only our unique generation of founding fathers who could refashion democracy in a new image. It was only the once-in-a-lifetime brew of Protestant deism that could bring sexy back. It was they, this unique mix of enlightened thinkers and this very modern Christianity that put the individual at the center. It was only this crew who could see that to be a human of noteworthiness was to be a human who participated in building the new city of the hill. We had to have political players because we were building something for this world right now. If you're not involved in that, 
if you can't participate in that, what good are you? Because this world's, it's the thing. We're not living for the next. We're living for this one. We needed participants. We needed people to commune with the now. Think of it like this. The I voted sticker is the new Ash Wednesday forehead blessing. And if you don't know what the Ash Wednesday forehead thing is, you're helping me make my point. Voting, and this isn't some unique take, is simply a secular sacrament. The last vestige of communion, the way to become whole and meaningful and a somebody for folks who aren't trying to get transcendent. None of this is to say you shouldn't vote. It's really not. I'm not kidding. It's simply to say, as we do here, the old world has lots to teach us about the new. Stay calm. Be at peace. (laughs) Play the long game and just keep asking, from whence does wisdom come? That's the key question, it seems to me, when considering the whole voting question. From whence comes wisdom? Because in entertaining that question, you can put in right order the importance of voting. Because if wisdom comes from the collective voice of the people, if, in fact, you need to be a stitch in a quilt that can produce such wisdom as approaches truth, you better put your stitch in. In other words, if the voice of the people is actually the voice of truth, then you got to get involved. But if the voice of the people is just a temporal claim to some ever-changing truth, in other words, if it's just for right now and it's not actually true, then it's just the collective claim of a mob. And the truth is found elsewhere. And you don't have to get involved. And if you do, you realize what it is. It's something we do right now to make this world at least a little livable right now. But it's hardly anything like important, or at least important in a transcendent way. Where does wisdom come from? The voice of the people down here or the voice of some God up there? The old world answered clearly on this one. Wisdom came from creator to creature. And for the new world, wisdom is found in the actual voices of the creatures themselves. And that's the end of this monologue which is a show. Come on, guys. There's some cool stuff happening in the world, and I'm just trying to set it out there. So, Shenny's Guggy Marjos. That means to you the victory. That's often said at the KB table in Georgia. We're going to throw a KB for a guy named Aaron. Aaron is joining First Things Foundation. That's this group of people who produces this podcast. I am the director of First Things, and this show is an outgrowth of our work overseas where we learn crazy cool stuff. And this show, which we call Watar, is produced by Andrew Schwartz, who spent two years in Mayan Guatemala working alongside some really cool people building their projects. 
Daniel Paternos, who spent two years in Sierra Leone doing the same thing. They're our producers on this pod. First Things Foundation is us. We're a nonprofit that lives and works in some of the world's most impoverished places, tough neighborhoods with beautiful people struggling to do their best. And we just get in there and try to help. Quietly. Never with our own projects. Only following up on their idea and building it as they see it. First Things Foundation. Share this Wattar First Things production with friends. Hit us up with solid reviews on iTunes. And everywhere you get your podcast, your love for us allows us to love and serve others. Nakfamdis, that's Georgian hasta luego. Kambufo, that's Bomber. Peace out. See you next time when we do a really cool interview with an author named Joe Obedegewu, who is Nigerian but lives in Sweden. Figure this out. And play pro tennis in America. Au revoir.